Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church Sermon Archive. We are glad that you have decided to listen. We hope each and every sermon will exalt God, strengthen God's people, and lead the lost to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at our website at www.trinityweatherford.net under the Contact Us tab. And now, here is Pastor Skyler Spradlin opening God's Word. Well, I want to invite you please to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4 with me again. Philippians chapter 4. As we continue to look at the third and really the final part of those commands for Christian living. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you the story of a man named William James Sidis. He was born in 19... Um, excuse me, 1898 to immigrant parents from Ukraine. He was born here in America. He is regarded by most as the smartest man who ever lived. He certainly, um, almost unanimously regarded as the smartest man who ever lived in modern times and definitely the smartest American who's ever lived. His incredible intellect became clear at a very early age. At 18 months old, he was reading the New York Times regularly. At age six, he was fluent in English, French, German, Russian, Hebrew, Turkish, and Armenian. At age six, he also invented his own full-fledged language. About that same time, he wrote his first novel. Do you feel lazy yet? Three years later, at the age of nine, he was accepted into Harvard, but due to his age, he wasn't allowed to attend classes until he matured to the age of 11. In 1910, he lectured for the Harvard Mathematical Club on the topic of four-dimensional bodies. Those in attendance who could understand what he said wrote that it was truly a revelation. He graduated Harvard at age 16, soon began teaching mathematics at Rice University in Houston, He eventually left that university because he experienced great difficulty because he was so much younger than all of his students. His IQ was estimated to be between somewhere somewhere between 250 and 300. Now for comparison, the average person's IQ is around 100. Albert Einstein possessed an IQ of 160. So this man, Sidis, on average, seemed to have the intellect of three individuals. Unfortunately for him, he didn't enjoy or like the popularity that came with his extreme intelligence. 
At the age of six, he not only wrote his first novel, he wrote a constitution to what he thought would be a utopia. And he decided that a utopia could only be lived in isolation. So he grew up desiring to live a quiet, unobstructed life. Due to several mishaps in his life, he decided that he wanted to stay as far away from the limelight as possible. So he began to take low-level accounting jobs in obscure offices around New York. Every time his colleagues would learn of who he was or recognized who he was, he would simply quit and go find another low-level job. He's on record as having said, all I want to do is run an adding machine, but they won't leave me alone. He spent the rest of his life chasing these obscure, low-level jobs, finally dying at the young age of 46 from a cerebral hemorrhage. He was found in his apartment by his landlady. And so the smartest man who ever lived died a penniless office clerk. Most of the time when we think about the power of the human brain, we think about men and women like William Sidis. And we think that's the height of the brain that you and I have been given. That that is the height uh, of achievement, our intellect. In fact, some people measure an individual's worth or importance or value based on their intellectual capabilities. But even our intellectual capabilities don't provide satisfaction. The smartest individual who ever lived found no security in his intellectual ability. Found no real meaning. No lasting purpose. He once said that just the sight of a mathematical equation made him physically ill. At the same time, there seemed to be no mathematical equation he could not solve. Intellect is a unique thing for humanity. It's a unique aspect that we possess uh, the power of our brains. It tells us that we are unlike other creatures in this creation. The human brain can do things that nothing else can do. The human brain can do things that computers will never do. It reminds us that we are indeed created in the image of God. With God-given abilities like retaining knowledge, ever-growing in our understanding, the fact that we can exercise things like reason and logic and decision-making capabilities reminds us that there's something so unique about humanity, and specifically, something so unique about the human brain, the human mind, that it could only be a product of God's gracious gifting to us. We can communicate 
with other human beings. We've even discovered how to communicate with animals. Not that we talk with them, we just train them. We can relate with other human beings. You think about the complexity of one individual and then the complexity of a relationship between two individuals. We have the capabilities because of the minds that God has given us to invent things. Even to create things. Not like God where we create out of nothing, but still, indeed, we can create stunning architectural feats and paintings and formulas that would even cause a man to land on the moon. These things are undeniably part of the human existence. They're undeniably, undeniably part of who we are. They're undeniable gifts that God has given to us. And yet, that is not the primary reason you and I possess a mind. These things, as, as wonderful and freeing as they may be, the intellectual advances that have taken place even in the last 20, 25, 50 years, are astounding, but they are not the primary purpose that you possess an intellectual, decision-making, reasonable, logical mind. Intellect, knowledge, understanding. They only serve one purpose. And they are largely secondary benefits for why we have the brains that we have. The real reason, our primary purpose for having a thinking mind is to know God. The most intellectual individual who has ever walked the face of the earth, if he or she does not know God, has nothing. And conversely, the most simple-minded human being who's ever walked this planet, if he or she knows God, has everything. Our minds are so we might know God. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about our minds. It's concerned with the way that you use your mind. It's concerned with the way you view your mind. It's concerned with the thoughts you put into your brain. We have passages like Colossians 3 and Others that allude to the same thing. But Colossians 3, Paul tells the Christians to set your minds on things above where Christ is. Set your minds on Christ. Conversely, he warns in other passages like Romans chapter 8, verse 6, <clears throat> that to set the mind on the flesh or on the world is to be hostile toward God. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 calls his readers to prepare their minds for action. Reminding us that we have a thinking faith. Christianity is a faith of knowing, but not knowing random facts, knowing a person. All of these passages tell us to lift our minds to their primary purpose. To lift our minds to their primary satisfaction, which is Knowing God and the things of God. That is the reason we have thinking brains. 
and perhaps the most powerful reference in all of the Bible, comes from Jesus Himself in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, where He tells His followers that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6 there, the Shema. It's a staple passage in the Jewish religion. One that every Jew would know by heart. But Jesus makes an addition to that quotation. Where Deuteronomy 6 says, Might. Love the Lord with all your might. Jesus adds the word mind. The reason is clear. God wants all of us. He wants your heart. He wants your soul. He wants your body. He wants your desires. He wants your motives. He wants your intentions. He wants your mind. He wants the thoughts that go through your mind. It's the demand of God for everyone who would follow Him. We don't give ourselves just partly to God. We don't give compartments of ourselves to God. We must give our entire self to God. Even the thoughts that we permit to pass through our ears. This is the chief reason, church, that we have a thinking mind. And it is the desire of the redeeming work of Christ. He's not only out to redeem our souls. He's not only out to redeem our bodies. He is out to redeem even our brains. So that we would think Properly. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, this is why he tells those Corinthian Christians that we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ as Christians. There's a lot of mystery wrapped up in that, but it at least means that this is the point of salvation. God is redeeming even the way you and I think about the world, think about ourselves, perceive things in this world. God is after our minds. Yet there's a problem. Kent Hughes states this problem quite clearly. This is what he says. This godlike potential of our minds to have the mind of Christ points us to a great scandal. Because very often we Christians fall far short of the mind of Christ. Far more often than we will admit our thinking is not Christian. How true of a statement is that? Just for your own self-examination. God is after your heart. God's after your soul. God's after your emotions. God's after your motives. All of those things. But God is also after your mind. God's also after your thoughts. And I think Mr. Hughes is correct. Far more often than we want to admit, our thinking is not like Christ. 
our minds are usually the quickest window into our souls, the condition of our souls. What we sit around thinking about reveals the health of our souls or perhaps the lack thereof. But this is the point of having a thinking brain. Not merely to gain and retain knowledge, but to think like Christ. To see and to know the world like Christ sees and knows the world. To treasure what Jesus treasures. To value what Jesus values. To know what is true like Jesus knows what is true. The problem is though that sin has corrupted absolutely everything about us. Has it not? Sin has corrupted not just our actions and not just our behavior or our attitudes or even our inaction or the desires of our hearts. Sin has corrupted even the way that we think. Albert Moeller helps us articulate this in what he calls the 14 noetic effects of the fall. I've shared these with you before. Noetic does not mean Noah like the person of the Bible. It's Greek to mean mind or intelligence. I want to read these 14 effects of the fall upon our brains to you. I won't give much commentary to them. But I, I want to read them so that you'll see just how significantly the fall has affected our thinking capabilities. Number one, he says that the effect of the fall upon our mind is ignorance. Number two, distractedness. Then forgetfulness. Prejudice. Faulty perspective. Intellectual fatigue. Inconsistencies. Failure to draw the right conclusion. Intellectual apathy. Dogmatism and closed-mindedness. Intellectual pride. Vain imagination. Miscommunication. And 14, partial knowledge. I find that list to be very insightful. The reason we don't perceive the world rightly. The reason we confuse right and wrong. The reason that we miscommunicate or think poorly or confuse truth versus falsehood or even confuse the purpose of creation is because our minds are affected by the fall. Here's why that's important, church. Your mind and the things that fill it, the things that occupy it, the thoughts that you permit to sit in your brain are the greatest shapers of who you are. What you think you will become. And what you are is what you think. As Christians, we're given this great God-like potential to have the mind of Christ. But instead, we hang on to the mind of the world. And so often, our Christian sanctification is hindered not because we lack resources, not even because we lack intellectual capabilities to understand the deep truths of Scripture, but our sanctification is often hindered because we let horrible, unchristian thoughts occupy our minds. Things of an impure nature, things of a selfish nature, 
things of bitterness and resentment and irrational anger, the lies of the world. You see, spiritual warfare is less, less and less and less about what's going on externally and so much more about what's going on internally. And that battle will always begin in your mind. So the Bible and even Paul himself here is concerned with the conditions of our brains. How we use them. That they be used rightly. That they take full advantage of and submit entirely to the redeeming power of the Gospel. This is what we find Paul getting at in verses 8 and 9 of Philippians 4. He's used this word finally, but it's not the end of the letter. He means finally because these are the last two instructions that he gives. Last two commands for Christian living that are still based on the first three chapters. He's going to give some other things towards the end and throughout the end of the letter here. But really from verse 10 and on through the end of the letter, he's sharing his thanksgiving for their provisions for him. Verse 8 and 9 are the last few instructions that kind of stand alone on the foundation that he's already laid in the first three chapters. So he says, finally. And he addresses these last two things, just as he has done the whole chapter, to the whole church. Now, you remember these two um, conflicted sisters in verse 2 of chapter 4, Euodia and Syntyche, and they're... Conflict is on the verge, if not already there, of division. And it's affecting the whole church. And so Paul has, has helped them. He wants to help them. He's instructing them on how to get along. And that's probably what's immediately on his mind, even through the rest of the chapter of verses 4 through verses 9. These steps will help Euodia and Syntyche get along. Remember in verse 7, and he's going to say it again in verse 9, the peace of God is what he's after here. Specifically, the peace in the relationship of this church and in the relationship between those two ladies. But on a grander scale, he's also thinking about the peace of the individual Christian. And so when he writes in verse 8, he's not just concerned with the two conflicted women. He's concerned with the brothers and sisters of Philippi. So what he has to say is universal for every Christian. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. The instructions here are for the whole church. And he gives two. The first one is found in verse 8. You'll see it at the end of the verse if you have the English Standard Version. The instruction is, think about these things. That's number one. Think about these things. He lists off here six virtues and two conditional clauses. So eight items in total. Six virtues, two conditional clauses. And all of the virtues begin with this word, whatever. Now I struggle with this word and I have to ask the question, what does he mean by this word? Does he mean whatever in the broad general sense? Where he's saying anything that might fit these bills, you 
the, the categories here that I'm talking about, you should embrace. True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. Whatever it is and wherever it comes from, maybe it's from the world, maybe it's from pagan religions, but whatever we could take that's honorable from anywhere, we should hold on to. Is that what he says with the word? Whatever, is he using this broad brush to grab everything that could ever possible fit, possibly fit in this category regardless of where it comes from? Or is he using a literary structure here where he uses a broad word to indicate a narrow subject? And we do that all the time. We'll, we'll say something like, whatever is true, to force a person to examine a broad area and come to the conclusion that only one thing is true. Or whatever is honorable, I might examine then the whatever in a big scale, but have to come to the conclusion that only one thing is honorable. Well, that's what I think Paul's doing. I think Paul's using a broad word to drive his readers to a narrow consideration of a singular subject. I don't think he's taking these words from a, from a cultural perspective and saying there are things in culture we should take note of. Though Christians should be behind good in whatever way we see it. I think Paul rather is taking these cultural moral terms that were very common in the day and he's confiscating them and making them Christian. So I don't want us to read this list, if it's up to me, with these broad categories. I want these broad words of whatever to help us realize everything else is futile. There's actually only one thing. And these are the things He would have us lift our minds toward. Now let's consider them each individually very, very briefly. He first says, whatever is true. And we know what he means by this. It's the opposite of false. It means real. Factual. It's clearly whatever aligns with God's Word. In John chapter 17, Jesus calls the Scriptures truth. And so whatever we would define as true must derive from and be in line with God's Word totally. This is important for you and I to understand today. Our world is one in which absolute truth is denied and conditional individual truth is embraced. And we've talked about this before. You know the most, one of the most just ignorant comments that humanity has probably ever uttered is that whatever is true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me and your truth can be your truth and my truth is my truth. I hope we possess the common sense enough to realize how futile such thinking is. As Christians, we know that whatever is true must be tied to, can only be tied to, can only derive from that which is absolutely true, and that is God's Word. Brothers and sisters, we're to set our minds on the truth of God's Word. 
Secondly, he says honorable. Whatever is honorable. It's a word that means noble and dignified and lofty and elevated. It represents those high thoughts that surround morality. The elevated thoughts of heaven as opposed to the muck and the mire of this world. As God's people, we don't let our minds stoop to the low and despised things. We fight to think on the high and exalted things of God. As defined by God. Don't look to the world's definition of honorable. Because like these people we've talked about already in this letter, the world glories in shameful things. So what is honorable is actually what is noble and defined by God as noble. Or dignified and defined by God as dignified. Or worthy of exalting as defined by God. Thirdly, he says we are to consider whatever is just. Just like with honorable, the world has a faulty definition of justice. We're to look at how God defines justice. Now some of your translations may very readily and easily use the word right here instead of just. The English Standard Version uses just. Other good translations use the word right, whatever is right. Both of those words here are interchangeable, but I will say that the word right still carries the sense of justice. Doing what is right in terms of justice. God's people ought to be people who are concerned with justice. But hear me, not justice according to the American justice system. God's people are concerned with the justice of God as defined by His law. We're concerned with the opinion of the heavenly judge. This is also not to say that Christians aren't concerned with things like mercy and grace and patience. We're not going about dealing out justice as if it's some form of punishment that Christians are supposed to take up. Rather, it means that we don't think upon things that imply cheating or injustice. Instead, we value what is right. We value what is fair. We're not thinking on things like revenge. We're thinking on what is right. Fourthly, he says, whatever is pure. Now, this doesn't just mean sexually pure. It does mean that, but... In a grander scale, it means morally pure or wholly pure. W-H-O-L-L-Y pure. Purity of the whole life. It means your mind should be filled with things that are wholesome and good. It also connects to the word holy. Pure in a holy sense. Your mind should be filled with things of a holy nature, not things of corruption, not things of immorality, not things of impurity, which requires us to avoid much of what the world offers us. I think often about Jesus saying, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
Hebrews says, resist sin to the point of shedding blood. Actually says it negatively. You haven't resisted yet to the point of shedding blood. But the implication is that you should. Purity is one of the great struggles of our day. It's one of my great struggles. It's one of most of our great struggles. And sometimes we have to give up our luxuries so that our minds will be set on whatever's pure. So that our lives will be pure. He says whatever's lovely should fill your mind. This means both all that is good, but it also means, and maybe surprisingly to you, whatever is aesthetically beautiful. Physical beauty. Like in a sunset. Or a starry night. But it also has the idea of spiritual beauty. Certain virtues that we identify in one another that we can say is indeed Beautiful. Here's the point of what, what Paul's saying here. God has created beauty and part of His desire for you and I is to recognize it and enjoy it. But yet again, we have to understand what right beauty is. Because it's not in a magazine. And it doesn't come from Hollywood. And it isn't what the world is telling us is really beautiful. The beauty that God has created and the, be- and the things that God points out as beautiful, they transcend what the world describes as beautiful. Six, he says commendable. Whatever's commendable should fill your mind. It refers to a good reputation. Those behaviors and those actions that are noteworthy, those Things that God deems as important and good. We might say they are the things that are highly respectable in God's eyes. And that's the key. How God views certain things in our lives, our behaviors, our actions, our thoughts. That's what matters. He's the standard. He's the measurement. He's the lens by which we examine our lives. If we are to be people with commendable actions to one another, those commendable actions must come from God's definition of what is commendable, not the world's. And then finally, these two conditional clauses I have to address really quickly. They're conditional because he uses this word if in front of them. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise. It's not as if Paul's saying that there may or may not be. It's really, I think, a catch-all phrase. Meant to be a discernment tool for the Christian. If you're trying to understand what should fill your mind, what should occupy your thought life, well, here's some discernment tools. Is it number one, excellent? Is it number two, praiseworthy? Excellent are those things that reflect the character of God. They're excellent, morally speaking. They're top-notch, elevated they would be described by God as worthy of thinking on. The other phrase, worthy of praise, or your Bible might uh, say it the other way, praiseworthy, are those things that God would declare praiseworthy. Things like righteousness, 
mercy instead of sacrifice. Peace, patience, compassion. We might say, cautiously, whatever God would applaud is praiseworthy. Ideas, attitudes, actions, deeds that God Himself commends. Praiseworthy doesn't mean what the world praises. It doesn't mean what your fellow Christians praise. It means what God praises. Now specifically, we find all of these things where? In the life of Christ, don't we? Every one of these areas we find Jesus living in, walking in, teaching on, thinking on. This is actually what it means to have the mind of Christ. These are the things that occupied Jesus' mind. These are the things He exemplified in His life. And these are the things that are so abnormal to a fallen world and foreign to our fallen flesh. And they produce certain behaviors that are so radically different from what we find in the world. What I'm trying to say to you is that these things are so abnormal, they can only come from Christ. They can only come from the mind that's being redeemed. They can only come from the mind that's being transformed. You might think on whatever's true for a time. You might think on whatever's commendable for a moment. You might think on whatever's lovely or excellent for a moment. Or you might even think on all these things, but twist them and make them sinful. But to have a mind that's occupied with whatever's true and honorable, just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy is to have a mind that's not living according to the flesh. Is to have a mind that's been worked over and molded and conformed by the Gospel. You see the point here, church, is that this is Christian thinking. And by that I mean, this is the product of the Gospel. It's so abnormal from the world, you won't find this thinking in the world. You'll only find it from heaven. You'll only have it if you're influenced by heaven, led by heaven, submissive to heaven. And at the same time, it's this sort of thinking, this sort of a changed mind that produces such a a sort of behavior in our lives that displays the credibility of the message we believe and proclaim. The Gospel cannot be relegated to just one message among many religious messages if God's people are thinking and living according to this very pattern. Because these things are supernatural things. These things are divine things. These things are heavenly things. The answer here is not just to be a better thinker. Not just to change your own habits by your own initiative and your own effort. The answer here is to let the Gospel work you over and make you new. To let the Spirit have full unfettered access to convict, correct, encourage, and enable you. 
to think like Christ, to have the mind of Christ, and to display the beauty, the glory, the power of the gospel we believe and preach. So Paul wraps up with this, the only instruction in this whole sentence at the end of verse 8. Think about these things. That word think does not just mean occupy the mind as I've been saying. I think it starts there, but it means something more significant. It means contemplate. Ponder. Deeply consider. Study. Work over. Wrestle with. Engage these things with your brain. That's what Paul's saying when he says think on these things. He's not saying, you know, as you go to bed at night and, and think about things before you sleep, just think on these things and it'll change you. I think there's some truth to that. But he's pressing deeper into your mind. Calling you to bring all those God-given abilities that we talked about at the beginning. All those God-given abilities to reason and logic and to decision-making and to contemplation. All of those things that tell us we're created in the image of God. Bring those mental powers to bear on these things. With your mind, with your brain, dig into what is true. Dig into what is honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy. Think on them. The reason for this, I think, is clear. As I said earlier, we become what we think. You are what you think. What occupies our minds will shape us and conform us and mold us and condition us. We're laying pathways in our brains. We're creating habits of thought. Our hearts will always be influenced and changed by what's in our brains. But before I move on, I thought it would be helpful to consider the inverse or the reverse of what Paul's saying here. If we reversed it, he would be saying whatever is false, whatever is dishonorable or unjust or impure or unlovely, love, uh, unlovely or condemning, or poor, or unworthy, do not think on those things. When he says that word think, he means dwell on, live on. So let your minds dwell on higher, nobler, heavenly things. Number two, bear with me. Much less to say about number two because it's really been seen throughout the whole letter. But the second thing that he tells them is in verse 9. It's almost the same language except for one word is different. He says, practice these things. Now there's one sense in which he's referring back to the things in verse 8. But there's another sense in which he's kind of starting a new idea. Now there's a relationship here. 
He says in verse 9, whatever or what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. The relationship and implication is that they've seen and heard and learned the things from verse 8. But there's also a little bit more going on in verse 9. It's the example that Paul has. He's already referenced. It's not a perfect example. In verse 12 of chapter 3, we already know that. He's not claiming perfection. Instead, he's saying, look at a tangible example of the things of verse 8 and then put them into practice. Because, listen, listen, Christianity isn't just a thinking faith. It's not just built on theory and idea and thought. Though I think it starts there. Our theology, our doctrine, our understanding, our theory, our thinking, our thought is worthless before God if it doesn't produce works in our lives. And so we have this active word in verse 9, practice. It's the same kind of active word as think, but it implies behavior. It implies lifestyle. It it implies diligent effort and intentionality. Now the things he says in verse 9, let's break down into two categories. Learned and received being one, and heard and seen being another. Learned and received seem to imply a formal instruction. Paul's saying, you are not lacking on me teaching you about these matters. I've preached to you, I've lectured to you, I've written to you. And you've learned these things, mentally speaking. You've received these things. You've had formal instruction. Then he says, you've heard and seen these things. Informal example. God has blessed me in my my life, and you guys know this, with certain individuals that have always just kind of risen up and become like mentors and leaders uh, in my my life. And some of the greatest ones let you into everyday, ordinary moments of their lives. And some of the greatest aspects, I believe, of spiritual growth for me comes in watching those that I respect when they don't really know I'm watching. I'm watching them do ordinary things. Put their kids to bed, change a diaper, change the wheel in a car, whatever it may be. And in those moments, you hear things. And they're unfiltered things. Those things that naturally come out of the heart without much thought behind them. It's it's a classic example of speaking before you think. And you see things. You see how they treat their wives in their home. How they discipline their kids. How they uphold the faith when no one's watching. When they're in private and not in public. Those, to me, have always been the greatest moments of instruction. This informal, unfiltered watching where I can hear and see someone live the Christian faith not on a stage, but in ordinary everyday life. And that's what Paul means here. You both saw me formally teach you and instruct you. You've watched my life. You've heard me. You've seen me. So practice these things. Practice what you've heard me teach. Practice what you've seen me do in my ordinary moments of my ordinary life. Put these things into action 
And the result here in the promise of verse 9 is the God of peace will be with you. Think on the things of God and do the things of God and the God of peace will be with you. I just want to say just a few more things, um, please, because I think it's very important for us as a church. When we consider the example that Paul's talking about in verse 9, I want to say two things specifically here. Number one, never let pride tell you that you cannot benefit from the example of someone else. Jamie and I were talking just this week about some friends that we've made recently who are younger than us and how we aspire to be like them when we grow up. Because we witness things in them that are wonderful. They're the opposite of who we are in some sense. The things we struggle with are the things they excel in. Don't ever think you're too mature or too grown up or too intellectual to learn from somebody else. You should be looking to your brothers and sisters as tangible examples where they thrive in the faith and learn from them and practice those things. That is part of the blessing of being in a church. Here's the other thing I want to say conversely. You ought to be the example to other brothers and sisters. You influence people constantly. Everything we say and everything we do teaches somebody. Somebody's watching. My kids are watching you. Your kids are watching me. This person over here who doesn't know your middle name is watching you. That's part of living life in a church together. That's part of the grace of God given to us. So be the example that others might be able to follow and practice and witness a tangible expression of the mind of Christ. I have to read a final quote. Jerry doesn't like it when I say final or I'm finishing up. He usually adds 15 minutes every time I say that. But I'm going to make him a liar today. There's a man or was a man named Francis Grimke. He was an African-American pastor in the 1800s. He has a great just little thoughtful journal on preaching. This is one thing he said. It was not about this text, but it so applies to this text. This is what he said. The church is the place of worship, of spiritual refreshment, where people may come and be instructed in the things of God, in things of an elevating and ennobling character, a place from which we may get glimpses of life on its highest plane, where we are forced to think of the enduring treasures of things that are true, just, pure, lovely, and of good report. That should be the church. And it's up to you and it's up to me to be both sides of that equation. To be the one who is humble enough and grateful to God enough to learn from your brothers and sisters, but who is also growing enough in the grace of God to be the example to other brothers and sisters. 
I want to finish by saying, where's your mind? It's the clearest indicator of the health of your soul. For some of you, it will reveal the grace of God in some areas. It will reveal the need to repent in other areas. Such is Christianity. Examining your mind will show you where you are lacking and need to submit to the Spirit and ask for the grace to grow. Examining your mind will also give you ample reason for a converting, transforming Savior. Some of you, if you examine your mind, you will realize your thought life truly and honestly exposes that you're not a Christian. Your mind isn't any different from the world. It has no sense of being new. No sense of being born again. No delight in higher, elevated, ennobling things. Well, you are blessed for today is the day of salvation. And God is still merciful. And you can be saved if you sit convicted that your mind is reflecting the mind of an unbeliever instead of a believer, you can be saved. And perhaps church, our specific flock, we should examine and see whether we are able to practice the things we witness in others. And if so, thank God for it. And ask Him to help you be the example you ought to be to your other brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is refreshing and life-giving and motivating and it's convicting, God. These are hard things. And I confess that my thought life is less than ideal, less than godly. It's not set on these higher things all the time. Oh, but Lord, I ask for Your grace change the way that I think and see and understand to pursue the greater knowledge of You so that I might honor You with a life lived for You. Help us, Lord, to be honest in the evaluation of our thoughts. And where we are wrong, bring us to repentance. And in the moment of repentance, meet us with grace and mercy, love and compassion, and the aid of Your Spirit to be transformed. Lord, I pray that You would humble the heart of the lost this morning. That they would finally admit and confess before You and the world that the thoughts of their heart their mind reflect the deadness of their heart. Show them, Lord, that You are willing, able, and ready to save. Lord, change us that we might truly walk the abundant life in Christ and enjoy the fullness of a relationship with You. And be living, breathing examples that the gospel really does change and give life.
for the good of your people and for the glory of your name, I pray and ask. Amen.